Chelsea Hotel. <laughs> there was blood on his clothes and they were dirty. I could see by his face he was not feeling well. He'd been to one too many parties. <laughs> he walked in the lobby in a picture of doom. It was plain to see he did a great hit. Last thing we have to talk about here in, in our final segment, I discovered something last night that I was right. kind of shocked, yeah. much like how his name is pronounced o- uh, Oaks. Uh, I was uh. sh- absolutely shocked uh, to find a couple of articles just like for, for on blog websites, basically. One is on countercurrents.org and the other one is jfkcountercoup.blogspot.com. And I'm not going to lie, when I discovered these articles, because I think I was typing in like John Train CIA or something like that. I was typing in <laughs> random keywords. And then yeah. this article, Phil Oaks and the Crucifixion of President John F. Kennedy came up by yeah. Edward Curtin, 2018. And then another one, Phil Oaks at Dealey Plaza. <laughs> right, yeah. By William E. Kelly Jr. And I, I soy faced. Like yeah. I, my jaw just like broke a hole in the floor because. <laughs> I, when I started reading this shit, th- like you thought the story was bizarre enough that this guy like adopts like a split personality of like a right wing maniac and then kills himself and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. This makes it so much fucking weirder. And yeah. it really like made my head spin. So this changes kind of everything that is told about Phil, about Phil Oaks and yeah. especially about the end of his life. And it like puts, you know, uh, it puts things in context. So I'm just going to read a little bit about this because this is also based on testimony from somebody who knew him very well. And that, that was the person that he linked up with at Ohio State, Jim Glover, right? The, mm-hmm. the other singing socialist in their original right. duo. Yeah. This is based on what he had to say. But uh, so, okay, so Edward Curtin uh, in Phil Oaks and the Crucifixion of President John F. Kennedy writes... It starts strong. President John Kennedy was assassinated by the U.S. National Security State, led by the CIA, <laughs> right, on November yeah. 22nd, 1963. Yeah, I remember that, that is a fact beyond dispute, except for those <laughs> who wish to engage in pseudo-debates to deny the obvious. I prefer not to, since there is nothing to debate. Okay, so, you know, then he goes on to, like, talks about Malcolm X, MLK, RFK, 9-11, and the ongoing war on terror. Today, JFK's killers have tightened their chokehold on the country and on the throats of those wishing to tell the truth. Everything is twisted in the media to serve their interests. Okay, what follows concerns one man's strange story as told by another man whose story is perhaps stranger and what their relationships with U.S. intelligence, if any, might suggest about our situation today. He quotes a a Phil Oak song. Oh, I am just a student, sir, and only want to learn. But it's hard to read through the rising smoke of the books you like to burn. So I'd like to make a promise and I'd like to make a vow that when I got something to say, sir, I'm going to say it now. Those are the words of folk singer Phil Oaks from his 1966 song, I'm Going to Say It Now. 
Oaks performed passionate protest songs in the 60s that inspired many to speak and act in opposition to the Vietnam War and many other injustices. He, not Bob Dylan, was the committed voice of the 60s radical anti-war folk music world, singing at events and rallies across the country, blah, 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 everything we've talked about. And then his tragic death in 1976. He says he's still inspired by his music, but I have come to a point where I feel compelled to broach a mysterious story involving <laughs> Oaks. <laughs> Something that when I first heard it in passing shocked me terribly. No, I thought, that can't be true. It's impossible. But the more I've researched it, the truer it seems, with emphasis on the word seems, for there is only one source to the story, a source I don't doubt but can't confirm. But either way, I've come to see the story as emblematic of the treachery and confusion sown by the CIA, its Operation Mockingbird, and its so-called mighty Wurlitzer that have played so many for fools through its control of the corporate mass media and the production of narratives that run like little movies too perfect to be true, but too true to be false, even when they are. Screens within screens within screens. Efforts to fuck up as many people as possible in Operation Chaos, to derange and cleave them into split personalities within and without, and to mystify as many minds as possible. I think Phil Oakes was one so mystified. I am wondering if in life and death he was used and abused by radically evil forces, whomever they may be. According to Phil's best friend from college at Ohio State, the man who taught him to play guitar, his singing partner, best man at his wedding, constant pal in their days in Greenwich Village, and lifelong friend Jim Glover, Oaks was in Dallas, Texas on November 22nd, 1963, standing outside the Daltex building in Dealey Plaza when JFK was driven by to be killed. Glover says Phil told him he went there as a, quote, national security observer. Okay? I had read yeah. about this on some offbeat websites, but never in biographies of Oaks or in the latest documentary about him, There But For Fortune. There seems to be an official ban on mentioning Glover's claim, even though Glover appears in the books in the documentary, has been interviewed by the authors and filmmaker, and is considered by them as Phil's old and close friend to be a reliable source. Jim Glover, who is one half of the well-known folk duo Jim and Gene, back in the 1960s, is now an anti-war activist in Florida, says that he has told Oaks's siblings and biographers all the details, has also reported it recently and as far back as the early 1990s to the FBI, and has put these claims out on some internet sites and openly spoken about it. These disclosures have resulted in silence from Oaks's family and biographers. There have been no efforts to refute it, and so it circulates far outside the mainstream. Since Glover speaks of it openly and in great detail, and since it is a shocking claim with serious implications, one would think it worthy of response but it is only greeted with silence. It seems perhaps like another example of what Thomas Merton called the unspeakable, the void that contradicts everything that is spoken even before the words are said. So I contacted Glover and asked him about it. He told me that Phil had told him months before the assassination that he was, quote, working for national security, something like the CIA. Then he later told him he had gone to Dallas with one of the Gambino boys as a, quote, national security observer and had been standing in Dealey Plaza outside the Daltex building where he was filmed when JFK was shot. Jim Glover has sent me photos that he discovered decades later that he says are photos of Phil in Dealey Plaza at the exact spot he mentioned and also in the movie theater where Oswald was arrested. He thinks they are very conclusive, especially because of the Dealey Plaza location, despite their blurriness. While I think they are not dispositive, they do look like oaks in a fuzzy sort of way. Uh, the first two photos, he shows the photos. They, I mean, it looks like it could be him, but we're not going to get hung up on yeah. photo. I don't know if you're looking at it, but um, mm -hmm. 
you know, it's like, okay, yeah, it could be him. Um, yeah, whatever you think I of the photos. Really yeah. I think though, if you look at the connections, uh, that's what both these authors believe that, you know, putting the photos aside, you can make a strong case. So, uh, whatever you think of the photos, they're one piece of a larger mystery, a tale stranger than fiction. They may or may not show Oakes, as Jim Glover is certain they do. But if Oakes' biographers trust him on other matters, why would they doubt him when he says Oakes told him he was in Dallas that day? He says they're afraid to entertain the possibility. So we might ask, if Phil Oakes was in Dallas that day, what was he doing there? The um, last and picture so, where he's holding the guitar does kind of look like him. I, I mean, maybe just because he's holding a guitar, I'm like, you know. I think that is him. The, oh, the, that's the yeah. for comparison. Oh, I see. Yeah, I yeah exactly. All right, all right. Oh, yeah, yeah I see. Okay. I it's creepy. Line. It's really haunting, though. The the yeah. one clip from the video where you can see Jackie and JFK's like head, and then this yeah. like blurry. It's almost like our cover art. Yeah, on, true. Like, in the it pocket, it's yeah. like a you definitely can't background. identify anyone in that. But no, yeah, no, uh, you can't. Uh, but it's okay. So. So, you know, he reiterates that, like, the killing of JFK is not a mystery, okay? Um, you know, <laughs> right, they yes. Did it. They did it, folks, <laughs> which uh, I appreciate. So not he's, explaining so the mystery. I'm just saying, did Phil Ox have a hand in it, or was he there? Yes. Okay. So, continuing. Uh, so, this is where the, the game starts to get thick here, and you realize that it's not, this isn't as crazy as it sounds. Phil Ox is the mystery in Glover's telling, and I'm wondering about him and Glover, what he thought he was doing getting tangled up with shadowy intelligence operatives, how that awakening of knowledge subsequently affected him, how he responded, and what place guilt and fear played in his post-1963 life and death. I'm proceeding as if Oakes went to Dallas at the naive age of 22, not to harm Kennedy, but as Glover said he said, to investigate the threats against Kennedy that he had heard of in New York through V.T. Lee, of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and others. This is the same V.T. Lee who received a letter from Lee Harvey Oswald, who was proposing an FPCC chapter for New Orleans in May 1963, where he was performing his theatrical stunts with Ted Cruz's dad. No, mm -hmm. but for real, though. Yeah, right. Lee warned Oswald not to provoke unnecessary incidents which frighten away prospective supporters in a place so hostile to Castro. But Oswald, of course, did the opposite to establish his fake support for Castro. Glover says he also knew of the plots against Kennedy that were widely circulating in leftist circles, and afterwards felt Phil and he were being set up to be implicated in the assassination in case the official cover story fell apart since he and Glover were sympathetic to Castro in Cuba. He says their phones were tapped and they were being surveilled. At this time, Glover and his partner Gene were persuaded, against Oak's advice, to go on a Hollywood hootenanny tour of Southern College campuses, a surreal trip that made stops in Dallas and Houston and seemed clearly connected to the Kennedy assassination as strange people got off and on the multi-bus caravan <laughs> talking about Kennedy being killed. Now, this is really something. Okay. Glover says these included George and Barbara Bush and J. Edgar Hoover who were picked up by the bus at the Houston airport late in the day of November 22nd. You would uh, have to have, okay. A, right? Okay. Yeah. So what the fuck, like, uh, Glover says that they picked up George and Barbara Bush and J. Edgar Hoover. I, I, I mean, presumably, did he see them face to face or like he heard? Either way, like, why would you make up something like that? That's so fucking random. Nobody even knew who Bush really was back then. Yeah. Anyways, um, you would have to have a fantastic imagination to make this stuff up. Why would he? Yet his tale is truly bizarre, revealing the intricate nature of the government conspiracy to kill Kennedy and create multiple tales of plausible deniability when others failed. He told me he doesn't know who told Phil to go to Dallas, but he's unequivocal that he did. He said, quote, 
I don't have all the answers. All I know is what Phil told me to keep us both as safe as possible. He told me I'll never lie to you, but there are things I can't tell you. Knowing I had a big mouth, if he told me things you were asking, I might not be alive. His purpose, as I see it, was to observe and being set up as if and being set up if Oswald lived. He could have been used as, see, a Castro sympathizer knew and was involved. And that would apply to me also, parentheses, learning what he did on the Hootenanny tour, and they would stop at nothing to have us both silenced permanently if Oswald or Kennedy lived because we knew too much. Once, he said, as an example of his big mouth, he was performing at the Gaslight in Greenwich Village and told the audience that Phil had been in Dallas as a national security observer. He thinks Oakes's manager, Al Grossman, and Bob Dylan heard it because Phil came over and said, are you trying to get me killed? Phil, he said, was a super patriot and would never have done anything to harm Kennedy. <laughs> super but was, patriot. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, okay. But was tricked into going to Dallas under the assumption that he was working with those trying to prevent the assassination by investigating the plot or trying to infiltrate it and perhaps stop it. But when Oakes returned to NYC later that day, according to Glover, he was devastated by Kennedy's assassination and at the realization that he had been used and was now compromised. That is why he cried so terribly that night and wanted to die. His youthful <laughs> innocence had died. No. Whoa. Whoa. I mean, uh, uh, it makes sense, though. Phil Oakes was a man of two minds and inclinations, not unusual for a coterie of musicians of that era who knew and associated with it each other, uh, had military intelligence, family backgrounds, and were never drafted like so many young men not in college. Like so many of these musical icons, Jim Morrison, David Crosby, Frank Zappa, Papa John Phillips, Stephen Stills, et al., as Dave McGowan chronicles in his book Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, Ox had a military background like them. He was a conservative rebel who suddenly transformed from a conservative to a radical at Ohio State in his last year, according to Glover. He attended Staunton Military Academy with Barry Goldwater's son and John Dean of Watergate fame and was a sergeant in the ROTC at Ohio State, where at the least he was aware of military intelligence spying on radical students. He idolized John Wayne, James Dean, Marlon Brando, and the American Western film mythology of the cowboy and soldier. He loved John Kennedy. He sang powerful anti-war songs and would jokingly say to his audience that now that they had listened to his anti-government songs, he was turning them into the government. He was a drama king who loved heroes and wanted to be one. He was a left-winger who mocked liberals. He was a folk singer who loved Elvis. In short, he was a man of many contradictions, of highs and lows, hope and despair, driven to stop war and injustice and become a star in the superficial entertainment culture, etc. As he fell apart in his last years, it became easy to categorize him with the facile term manic depressive or bipolar. I think that misses the heart of the matter, as if a term explains its reality, as if his paranoia had no basis outside his mind, as if he was just nuts to think the CIA was out to get him, as he did regularly and especially after he was attacked and choked while walking along on a beach in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, when his vocal cords were ruptured and his voice permanently damaged. My guess is that he was driven by guilt and fear and that his suicide at age 35 was connected to being in Dallas on the day JFK was assassinated. I think he died that day, too, and that the next 13 years of his life were courageous attempts to quell his guilt for being gulled into going to Dallas and fear that he might be killed for doing so by singing out his rebellious songs in the face of his ghosts. He was a haunted man and produced haunting songs in response to exercise his demons, including the songs The Crucifixion and That Was the President, both about John Kennedy. In his last years, he said he was John Train, 
not Phil Oaks, and that John Train had killed Phil Oaks in the Chelsea Hotel on the summer solstice in 1975, the solstice being a significant turning point. His biographers give various explanations for his adoption of the pseudonym, all of which I believe missed the mark. Yeah, so he says, you know, to say he took the name from John Wayne, John Ford, John Kennedy, and Yates avoids the key word, train. It's as if the word is unimportant or unspeakable, or the name John Train is a common name that Crazy Phil just made up. As he was unraveling in fear and trembling, I believe he was referring to a real John Train, a CIA operative, when he metaphorically said, you know, basically on the first day of 1975, Phil Oaks was murdered in the Chelsea Hotel for the good of society's public and secret. He needed to be uh, gotten rid of. Could it be just a coincidence that there was a real John Train who from the early 50s onward was connected to the CIA and the covert state and various activities as an asset or agent? This John Train, who was one of the founders and funders of the Paris Review, its first managing editor, who together with the CIA's Peter Matheson and George Plimpton, who was in the room when Bobby Kennedy was killed, started the magazine for the CIA under its propaganda front, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, this John Train, who ran cover corporations for the CIA and was connected to George Herbert Walker Bush through the CIA's Thomas Devine, who was involved in setting up Bush's company Zapata Offshore. This John Train, who was deeply involved in the CIA's activities in the early 80s, backing the CIA-supported Mujahideen against the Soviets in Afghanistan, it is far-fetched in the extreme to think Phil Oaks just plucked the name John Train out of thin air. But the fact that this is asserted by his biographers makes sense when we realize that Jim Glover's claims are ignored by Oaks's family, his biographers, and the makers of the documentary about him. That there is a real CIA-affiliated John Train, and that Glover insists Phil told him he was in Dallas in 1963 seem clearly connected, but these facts are unspeakable. For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminal jihad. Hello, hello, hello. Is there anybody home? I've only called to say I'm sorry. The drums are in the dark and all Took away my eyes and 